Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted you to, to welcome you to our most recent podcast with our guest, Marion Tanofsky Kraft. Uh, Marion is an assistant professor in the Department of Medical and Clinical Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. At one point, she was at Yale. She was a research assistant with us, actually, at the Yale Center for Eating and Weight Disorders, and at that time was very involved in uh, clinical trials for uh, treatment of various eating and weight problems, and she's continued that interest. After she left Yale as a research assistant, she received her PhD in clinical psychology from Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and then spent time working in various capacities at the National Institutes of Health. So, Marion, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. So you're interested in eating and weight issues in children and adolescents. Tell us about how serious, uh, let's just take obesity and weight issues are in that population. Well, clearly the rates of obesity have increased just uh, as adult obesity has increased over the past 30, 40 years, uh, such that now between 15 and 20 percent of children and adolescents are uh, overweight or obese. And um, what's, what's most frightening is we're beginning to see children present with some of the same health uh, comorbidities that we see in adults. So the problem is serious enough that it cries out for two things, both prevention and treatment. And I know the work that you do bridges those two areas. So you've um, come up with this concept of loss of control with eating. And it... Um, stems from earlier work than you and others have done on the concept of binge eating. Can you explain what those terms mean and what it's all about? Sure, absolutely. Uh, binge eating is is really considered uh, uh, an episode of overeating during which someone feels uh, a sense of loss of control about how much uh, is being eaten, um, what types of foods are being eaten. And it was identified uh, actually many years ago, but it, research burgeoned in the early 90s looking at adults who reported binge eating episodes. And my interest really began based on a little study that we had done a few years ago where we asked adults with binge eating or binge eating problems to, to tell us when they recall their first binge eating episode. And most talked about being within the middle childhood range or in early adolescence. Um, so we began to study that. And an interesting uh, finding was that it, when children would describe their episodes, it wasn't always an unambiguously large amount of food. Uh, sometimes it was uh, maybe a smaller amount of food. Now, I should add the caveat that because children are growing and they have uh, different nutritional needs, it's sometimes difficult to determine what exactly is considered a large amount of food. But through this work, we started to look at the, the aspect of just loss of control, the feeling they couldn't stop eating once they started. And we're, we're seeing now that, that it's quite common in children and adolescents, um, depending on their, their body weight, heavier children happen to experience it more than uh, uh, non-overweight children. And what sort of speculation is there in the field about what creates this? Why do kids start these kind of behavior patterns at that age? Well, I think that there are probably a lot of different things. Um, some of it's modeling, seeing how their parents eat. Uh, others may be something genetic or physiological uh, that they're driven to eat. Um, and 
I'm not really, I don't know that we know the answer of, of what, be, what causes it to begin. Uh, there's some recent data suggesting that maybe it's, it's uh, some of the same things that cause eating disorders, you know, early, early difficult parent relationships, but it's still really in uh, the, the, the research is really needs to be done still. So you've done some very interesting work um, documenting the correlates of mm -hmm. this kind of behavior pattern. What other things is it associated with? Can you tell us about that, please? Sure. Well, well, one of the first um, findings uh, that that arose from our group and others is is that it's uh, more common in overweight youth, and that uh, children who report loss of control have more body fat mass or adiposity when we when we separate it out from lean mass. They also report uh, elevations in in uh, in emotional distress, anxiety symptoms, symptoms of depression, uh, disordered eating cognitions, and so forth. They they tend not to report clinically significant problems, but elevated compared to children who don't report these episodes. Okay. You know, just to put put this in context, and I think you began to do this, but it would be nice to to emphasize it a little bit more, that there are adults with binge eating disorder for yes. whom this is a very distressing condition yes. to have. Could you say a little bit about that and then why it's so important to catch it early? Yes. Well, binge eating disorder in adulthood s seems to be very similar to the classic eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia nervosa, in terms of the level of psychiatric comorbidity, the level of distress, the functional impairment that we see with those eating disorders. And because we're not, with children who report loss of control eating, because we're not seeing that clinical level yet, there's, there's the possibility that if we can intervene while they're young, we can maybe prevent a full eating disorder and, um, hopefully prevent uh, excessive rapid weight gain. So you've just answered this question I was about to ask it away, but you know, usually the, the traditional approach in medicine is you wait till somebody has a problem, they can't stand it anymore, they come in for treatment. In, in the ideal world, you have, happen to have a treatment that works for that, it goes away, you're happy, they're happy. Um, but you're focusing more on prevention here. Right. And that's because I think that we don't have any good treatments for weight loss for children or adults. I mean, there is there is some suggestion that surgery works. Um, we don't know how well it works for youth. And I, I just don't have any good answers of how to best treat people uh, who are overweight and obese. So I believe that our, our first our, our real first line is to, to prevent uh, the, the excess weight gain before it becomes a problem. And as I mentioned, in doing so, hopefully prevent some of the psychiatric distress. In the seminar it. that you just presented at the Rudd Center, you, you mentioned an interesting observation that with this loss of control uh, phenomenon that you have, have been so careful in studying, there aren't gender differences in children at early ages, but it tends to show up in adolescence where females tend to have more of the problem. Is that, am I capturing that correctly? And if so, why do you think that is? Well, I think that may be just um, because eating disorders start to manifest um, more often in adolescence, and, and as girls' bodies changes and they develop more adiposity, they may gain more distress uh, with their body. In fact, they may start engaging in, in dieting that's not so health, helpful. Uh, 
uh, and other behaviors, and there and there's just more concern all around. So I suspect that that's why we see uh, some of the gender differences that we do emerging in adolescence. But again, with we're not really sure. It may be that so few children report such episodes uh, when they're younger that we just can't detect the gender differences. So you're in the midst of running a very ambitious clinical trial where you're comparing various approaches to dealing with this loss of control matter in children. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the trial, but before we get into the details of the trial, you, you've mentioned that, and you've been involved in this research yourself, there are two primary treatments that get used for dealing with binge eating, cognitive behavior therapy and interpersonal psychotherapy. Could you describe how those are different from one another? Sure. Um, cognitive uh, behavior therapy, which is really considered the, the gold standard, I believe, for the treatment of eating disorders, uh, bulimia nervosa and uh, binge eating disorder, really focuses on, uh, it, it comes from the theory that people, uh, uh, there's a, a societal pressure to be thin, so there are concerns, excessive concerns about body shape and weight. Individuals begin to uh, chronically restrict their intake. And ultimately, when someone restricts too much, they go off their diet a little, and then they go off it all the way and say, okay, I'm not just going to have two cookies, I'm going to have the whole bag. And they develop a pattern of binge eating. With interpersonal psychotherapy, it's believed that the binge eating really manifests as a, as a result of, of, of either interpersonal difficulties, um, social stress, not using interpersonal relationships in a supportive, helpful way. So they end up using food to cope, and that develops into a pattern of binge eating. So these two treatments are fundamentally different from one another, aren't they? One, where one is much more symptom-focused, mm -hmm. the other is much more focused on these interpersonal processes. And mm -hmm. how do, when, when they're compared to each other in treating binge eating in adults, what do the studies show? The studies shown that they're equally effective. All published studies have shown that, that they're equally effective. And they both end up improving uh, the aspects that the other treats. So uh, people with uh, who are treated with CBT end up improving their self-esteem and feeling better and improving their relationships, whereas people with, it's been shown that people who treated with IPT end up reducing chronic dieting and feeling better about their body. That's so interesting. You know, it, it always puzzled me that you could have treatments that are so fundamentally different, producing basically the same effects. And you've started to explain why that might be the case, because each works in its own domain, but also helps in the other area as well. And then so people are, might end up getting the same treatment more or less, right. although they're fundamentally different. So in your trial, you're comparing interpersonal psychotherapy. So you're using that as the main show here. As the main show. Why did, why did you pick that over the cognitive behavior therapy, given that they have equivalent results mm -hmm. with adults? Well, there were a number of reasons. Um, first is that it was my sense, based on the literature showing that peer relationships, interpersonal relationships are so important to adolescents. Um, that made me lean towards IPT. Uh, another reason, which is, is an important reason, is that IPT had already been shown to be successful for the treatment of depression in adolescents, and a preventative program had already been designed uh, in New York by Dr. Jamie Young. 
also, in, in our work, we, we had found that children reporting both dieting and uh, loss of control eating um, tended to report that the loss of control eating began first. And when they did describe their dieting behaviors, most of the behaviors they described were pretty healthful. And whether or not those were the actual behaviors they were engaging in, uh, we certainly didn't want to suggest that they should stop eating fruits and vegetables uh, or trying to increase their physical activity. So tell us the nature of the study that you're doing. Who are you studying and what sure. kinds of treatments are you comparing? Okay, well, the current study includes adolescent girls, all of whom report at least one episode of loss of control eating um, prior to um, the, the month prior to being assessed. Uh, and then we randomly assign them to either the IPT prevention program or to a standard of care health education program, uh, which really is, is quite similar to a health education program they might uh, uh, take in, in high school, although we try to make it fun and uh, more interesting. And they, they go to these groups for 12 weeks, and then we follow them for a year afterwards. And we're studying a whole variety of things, uh, not only to see if we, we improve their negative affect, their interpersonal relationships, uh, reduce their loss of control eating, and obviously we're studying their, their body weight. Uh, we're also studying their body fat with uh, dual energy, um, with DEXA scans, and, um, and uh, we're also studying them in the laboratory. So we're seeing how they eat at a, at a binge meal, and then uh, we'll... we'll test them again at the end uh, to see if they eat any differently. Well, for those of you who are listening to this podcast and you haven't done clinical trials, I can say from our own experience how demanding these are and uh, how much commitment it takes over such a long period of time to pull these off. So it's really nice that you're doing this. And I know the results are going to be very important and interesting. So given that you're in the midst of the trial, of course, we don't know what you're going to find. We'll have to wait until that chapter is written. But you did do some pilot yes. for this. Can you tell us some of, now again, with all the cautions of it being the, the pilots, what, what are some of the things you observed in that? That, that part of the work? Well, interestingly, we, we did find that the girls in, and again, a very small sample, we found the girls uh, randomized to the IPT group were more likely to stabilize their body weight or lose a little bit about a little bit of weight uh, compared to the girls in the health education group. Again, the caveat that it was a small sample and, uh, and you know, certainly was not adequately powered. Um, Interestingly, we have not seen a lot of differences in improvements in terms of interpersonal functioning or negative affect um, or, or loss of control episodes. They all improved. Uh, so we're, we're now looking a lot more closely at the girls in the larger trial to understand what the mechanism may be in terms of uh, if, if, in fact, they do uh, maintain their weight better. You know, it's always a possible outcome from your study that the, the two treatments that you're testing here will work the same. I know. <laughs> and, and, you know, in some ways you say, well, you know, if everything works the same, then that's bad What's, news. But then it's good news, of course, because exactly. then it gives you a lot of potential ways to intervene. Mm -hmm. so, Absolutely. And it may be the support of being in a group with other people like you. Um, but, again, I don't, I don't know. 
Right, and, and attending to the problem and right. having your family know that you're working on it. It could be a whole constellation exactly. of, of factors. But one never knows that until you do the kind of trials that you're doing. So congratulations for thank that. Thank you. Well, so Marion, thank you very much for joining us. This is a, a very important question and, and an important population to work with. And if you find a way of preventing weight gain in this at-risk population, it could have very important implications for the way we deal with this issue. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing your results. Thank you so much. So our guest today was Marion Tanofsky Kraft from the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, and please look at our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, for a list of the other podcasts that we've done um, over the past months. We've had a variety of excellent guests there. And our website also contains information for getting a free email newsletter on food and food policy issues and has a variety of other resources. Thank you.